Welcome to The Truth In This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee. You know, the Rob Lee. Not to be confused with any of these other Rob Lees walking around. They're posers, I tell you, posers. So today, I have the privilege of being here, having a conversation with the founder and president of the Afrofuturism Network, a historian, a comic book geek, a writer, and an educator. Please welcome William Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you, man. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> Absolutely. I am... Just thrilled, and um, I feel like we we talked like fifteen minutes before I even started recording. So I feel like we already had a pre-interview, which is kind right. of great, actually. Right. <laughs> so again, thank you for joining the podcast, and let's let's dive right in. Um, d- describe what you describe the Afrofuturism Network, and what was your thought process in kind of building out this is a a a, a business seems not quite accurate, seems larger than that, but yes. describe describe what that is, and what was the process in building it out. Wow. Um, well, for one, you know, I always tell folks in terms of Afrofuturism, you know, I was I was an Afrofuturist before I even knew that was a thing, you know, and I'm sure like many of your listeners and anyone that's into these things to start off in my childhood. You know, uh, I've been in love with comic books, science fiction, fantasy, you name it, uh, for as long as I can remember. And I was introduced to it by my parents. And I just fell in love with it and I've not given it up. That's one part that I've always held on to. And the other passion that was ignited in me very early age because of my upbringing was also history, you know. And later on, I find out there's this space where these two things come together. And, you know, the term Afrofuturism was coined in the 1990s. And, you know, I found out that there was like a name for this thing. I was like, oh, man, this is really cool. And I had always looked to have my own business. I always looked to do things independently. And this, I felt, was an excellent opportunity to do what I love and at the same time turn it into a business. Because I think, you know, the old adage, you know, you do what you love, you never work a day in your life type of thing. So this was a space where I could do that. And it really happened. It was kind of weird. I, I would always write and, and do research and so on and so forth. And one time I was invited to Croatia to speak on black people in science fiction, comic books, films, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And I brought a friend of mine, you know, longtime friend of mine, he came, he came with me to Europe because he was like, man, I'm not letting you go to Croatia talking about <laughs> black people and white supremacy no. in Europe <laughs> by yourself. So he comes with me and he sees the presentation. And after it was over, he was like, man, this is it. So what are you talking about? He was like, no, this, this, you got to do this. This yeah. is your thing, you know? And I came up with the idea of the Afrofuturism network as this space of just trying to find a way to bring all these creators and creative people together under one banner where they could communicate with one another. If you hear something, you pass it on, so yeah. on and so forth. And I'm always looking for ways to promote other people. So that it, my business is really, I'm in the business of helping other people to reach their goals. That's the way I see it. And it's under the Afrofuturist uh, banner. And out of that, um, I've written a book, uh, The Ex-Con, Voodoo Priest, Goddess, and the African King, which is based on research I did in graduate school. Yeah. Uh, and that book has had some incredible legs. It's been out for quite a few years, and people are still reading it, and people are still talking to me about it. I'm still doing presentations on it. And it's like really weird, because you know when you write something, like, who's going to read this? I'm yeah. talking about Luke Cage, I'm talking about Storm and so forth. Who cares, you know? And you put it out there and you get this response from people. 
you know, from across the country and overseas and so forth. And they're really buying into it. They really enjoy it. And like I said, it, it you know, it still has legs. And also I uh, did a comic convention, did a comic con. Um, and we were working on a second one. We'll talk about it a little bit later, but because of COVID, mm-hmm. you know, that got pushed back, but something else came out of it. And currently um, I have a radio show now. I, I come on uh, 1450 AM WOL, yeah. uh, 95.9 FM. Uh, right out of the DMV, folks that don't know. For, for me, to, for the longest DMV met Department of Motor Vehicles because I'm from New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I'm talking D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's it's just been great, man. This this ride that I've been on, it's just been really great. Yeah, we, we do that thing where we bracket which part of the DMV we're in as well. Right. And um, yeah, like sometimes Baltimore doesn't seem like it's part of the DMV. <laughs> but uh, no shots, no shots, but shots. Right, right, right. Um, right. No, that's that's great. And, and I love this this notion of community and this notion of working with folks. And it doesn't seem as restrictive if some people make it. It's like, oh, well, this isn't Afrofuturism and this is and, and so on. And I think when it's like, hey, are you interested in this? Is this something? And does right. it does it fit? Does it make sense? Right. And. I just just love what you were describing there in terms of the messaging and in terms of what your approach is and some of the opportunities that is presented. So that's that's great to hear. And thank you for sharing that. Yeah. So let, let's talk about a specific life experience that sure. um, has or any life experiences that have helped shape your creative sensibilities. Did you have your 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 sought after speaker? So that's one thing. Did you know? Right. I, I mean, here I was like, how did I get this dude again? Right. And, and then you're you're an author. You're 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 into the comic book space as right. well. So so tell me about that. Wow, it's it. There's so much, and I don't know. You know, I know we we be short on time, so I'll try to be as brief as possible. Yeah. But there was so many experiences that I look back on that really shaped me. And I mean, starting from a very young person. Yeah. Um, one of the earliest things I can remember is, that, you know, I love to draw, you know, I'm an artist and so forth. And, I, and my father would also draw. And I would draw superheroes. And because of the, the most of the comics that I looked at had white characters, most of the cartoons I'm looking at had white characters, I would oftentimes draw white characters. And one day my pops saw me sketching and he was like, and I mean, I'm elementary school. Yeah. And he was like, well, why haven't you drawn any black people? Yeah. And I didn't have an answer. I remember this like it happened yesterday. And I did not have an answer. And in not having an answer, I just started drawing black people. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because certain things don't require a response. It's for you to think. You know, and the reason why I hadn't drawn it, really, I hadn't thought about it. I hadn't seen myself as the very heroes I was drawing. And that one conversation, that very brief conversation with my dad changed my entire outlook in terms of how I looked at art from that moment forward. Right. Um, the other thing that shaped me was, once again, the love of history. And this is coming from uh, dining room table conversations. This is coming from, you know, they didn't teach you this in school kind of approach that my parents had and things that I had to watch as a child, things that I had to read as a child outside of what the school was given. Yeah. And I remember, you know, the autobiography of Malcolm X was my bedtime story. It was yeah. literally my bedtime story. And I mean, the actual, not the kid version, the, the real <laughs> Alex Haley. <laughs> yeah, that was it. And I remember J.A. Rogers, uh, Sex and Race was also my bedtime story. I'm talking like as a kid. Yeah. So those experiences very early on shaped me in terms of my thinking. And I just grew with it. Uh, later on down the line, um, you know, when I decided to go to college, you know, uh, it's really interesting because I wanted to be an engineer. 
for no reason. Let's be clear, no reason. I just heard they made a lot of money, uh-huh. and, I, and, I, and I thought I could make robots. <laughs> I kid you not. I thought I could make robots. Hold on, hold on. I got to stop you right there because that is my, is part of my story as well. <laughs> I, like literally, it was just like artists when I was a kid, right? Doing, doing my own comics. Um, didn't really have that conversation as much as uh, of like, why aren't you doing this or, or doing that, right. but. When you when you mentioned the robotics thing, it's like I'm gonna make robots. I was like, hold up! I wanted right. to go to the U to make to specialize in robotics. Right. And up until like high school, I'm like junior maybe, and then I had that physics class, and I was like, yes. okay, I'm not gonna be yes. an engineer. Exactly. Else. <laughs> exactly. So I ended up going to Tuskegee mm-hmm. University, and I was gonna be a, like I said, I was gonna be an engineer, so I make robots. And when they stopped using numbers in math class and started putting in letters. <laughs> Some of these variables. Like, oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like they would give you a bunch of letters, but a number would come out as an answer. I realized that wasn't for me. And I remember I'd grown so frustrated that I actually dropped out. Mm. Like I just took myself out of school. I didn't tell anybody. Yeah. So I had dropped out. That lasted for as long as, as it took my mom to find out. <laughs> so right. she, she was like, well, you can drop out. Just pay me back everything that I paid you. I said, you know what? I think I'm going to get this college thing one more try. <laughs> and they said, you know, one of the questions was asked was, well, what are you doing when no one asks you to do it? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm reading history books. And I remember I would be in a study group and everyone would have their math book, their physics or whatever. I'm in the corner with a history book. So my roommate at the time was like, well, duh, why don't you just major in history? <laughs> and I hadn't yeah. thought of it, you know, and I did. And that just changed everything in terms of my professional, you know, uh, trajectory, just moving forward. And then from there, ultimately went to graduate school, Clark Atlanta, HBCUs represent and, <laughs> and studied um, African studies there. Uh, so those are some of the earliest things in terms of shaping me, putting me on this path. And like I said, uh, I'd always loved comics, cartoons to this yeah. day, yeah. you know, you know, obviously. Uh, nothing has changed really. And I remember uh, one major thing I just shared this story with yeah. I've written a book. Uh, and like I said, I didn't know what to uh, do with it or whatever. And uh, I was on my way to work. So on the train and I was on my way to work and something said, get off the train. Mm. And I'm like, I'm going to work. Someone's like, well, just call out, you know. I, maybe I shouldn't say that part. <laughs> because this happened a while ago, so I think I'm safe. Like statute of limitations on lying is over. I don't know if that's a thing. But I was on the train, and I got off, and I had copies of my book on me. Yeah. And I stopped at Sankofa Books in Washington, D.C. Yeah. And I walked in, and fortunately, one of the owners was there. So I was like, look, I got this book, and um, would you be interested in carrying it? The woman takes the book and she just thumbs it. She was like, how many copies and would you like to do a presentation here? That's great. And I was so nervous because I was not expecting it. I had my tablet with me and I was like, well, let me check my schedule. (laughs) (laughs) And I had to hold it up because I had Candy Crush on. So I had to fake. (laughs) That's great. So I'm trying to play big business, man. Like I had a calendar or something and I'm like, oh, I just hope the volume's down. And I'm like, oh, I think I can squeeze you in for, you know, mm, and yes. I did it. And I did a presentation at Sankofa Books showing off uh, my research and so forth, book signing. Yeah. And like I said, it's just been, you know, really great since that point. And I've had so many other experiences. Um, I could go on and on, but you know, those are just some of the main ones. No, that's, that's huge. And thank you for, for sharing that even and adding that, that last story. And that's really, really great. Um, 
And one of the things that you mentioned that I think one of your peers uh, had mentioned, like, what's the thing that you're, you're doing that you enjoy? And you came to that illumination. It's, it's history. It, it comes out of this, th- that same notion. It's because I've been doing this deep dive into like Austin Cleon stuff and just trying to understand this creative thing that I feel that I've cut off. Because I, I chose professionalism and right. and there can be a middle ground between the two or choosing whatever the identity that I felt that would make me money and feel right. something that my parents can maybe brag about or right. other people could brag about. And one of the things that he touched on and it and, and I think some people really need to look and examine it. What are the things that you're doing like when you're procrastinating? Because we're all procrastinating. Exactly. And if I got have the day job as a lot of the cre- as a lot of creators do, right? right? And the day job is fine. It's solving right. puzzles, and I like that. Right. But if it was like, yeah, you get to do ten podcasts a day or work eight hours. I'm choosing right. a podcast every time, exactly. and that's the thing I'd rather procrastinate doing. Whether it's working on questions, researching, right. like I got to interview this coming up next week, and I was like, all right, I'm up super early let me watch this dude's movie to better understand where he's coming from. Exactly. And that's going to give me more context and, right. and, and leave for a much richer conversation, I think. Right. Right. And it, it's, it's important to really do that and really extend. And also I've, I've noticed, um, and, and cause I actually got a question I want to ask you that's not sure. even listed. Um, but I've, I've noticed that we, we hear about professionalism all the time. <clears throat> what is your take on professionalism, like wow. I feel like it's a pejorative. I feel like it's yes. a weird term. Term. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think uh, professionalism is something that other people can speak to more than I could. So, in other words, what I mean is, I could be doing all the right things in my mind, mm-hmm. and you could see it as being unprofessional. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, I think it's this thing where there's almost this agreement that our exchange was respectful. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? If we can have that exchange and there's mutual respect going in both directions, I believe that's professionalism. I don't think it's anything that can be defined by the way a person dresses or any of these other things that we attach to it. When I'm done with you, when we're done having our conversation, our engagement, can you say, you know, he knew what he was doing, he respected me, I respected him. Yeah. I believe that's the core of professionalism because you can deal with someone in, you know, the best of professional suits, the best of professional attire, uh, you know, speaking the King's English. Or the Queen's yeah, yeah. English. I don't know what it is, but, <laughs> you know, and at the end of the day, you're saying this is one of the most unprofessional people yeah. I have ever met. It's because of that engagement. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where. Um, that professionalism piece comes in. And, you know, real quick in terms of, you know, occupations, I've been real fortunate. Uh, I've actually been doing what I, I love as far as like, quote unquote, work goes. Also, I'm a teacher, yeah. you know, a teacher and a, and a um, professor. So for one way or another, I am always feel like I'm going to be educating people in some form or fashion. I've actually been able to bring in comic books, cartoons and everything else into the classroom. So that's kind of cool too. So I still find a way to bring that element even into uh, my workspace. That's, that's great. Um, like the, I, I try to align and connect what the day job is because it can't be too far off. Right. So 
you know, I'm a data analyst. So one of my jobs is uncovering things, getting to the root cause of things. And I think through this podcast, I'm uncovering like people's stories and helping, you know, in that way. So that's is of interest to me. But if it was completely boring, like, yo, you're skimming this. Right. It's like, look, just light me on fire. Let me get out of here. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so tell me about a time where it's like someone gave you a shot, like that was like very influential. And I, and I think you may have mentioned it, yeah, but yeah. yeah, there's another one that, that comes yeah, to mind. This, like, like, it's so weird, you know, when where you are today, you're like a composite of all your experiences and all the people you've come across and so yeah. forth. And like I shared with you, the, the Sankofa piece was really huge in terms of putting me on this path, let me know that I have something that folks want to hear. Uh, a couple other things that had happened to me early on, um, I was a writer and the way that I got on that path was, was pretty interesting. I remember um, I was, this is going back for folks that don't remember VCRs and VHSs and stuff like that, right? Uh, <laughs> no, right? What was that? Uh, it's like these really big tapes. No. Um, uh, my sister had asked me to record a comedian for her. She was somewhere. Where I said, can you record this comedy show, this stand-up show? I was like, cool, I'll record it. And I, re- I was recording it, and I remember hearing the guy stand-up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say who he is, because, you know. But nonetheless, he was saying these horrible things about black people in Africa, I just remember, and, and people were laughing. You know, this guy's huge. Yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, people are applauding this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, something in me was like, you gotta get your side out, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to kind of counterbalance that and show that there's another approach to this. So I started writing. Yeah. And one of the first pieces I had written was called uh, Black Leadership Owes Hip Hop an Apology. <sighs> And my first thought was to submit it to, at the time, once again, going back a few years, Source Magazine was huge, Double XL, all these hip-hop magazines. So I submitted to a bunch of hip-hop magazines. Didn't hear back from any of them. Got a letter back from Double XL Magazine. Still have the letter. And the guy critiques my piece. Mm -hmm. He took the time. And, and, And that's the thing that I always hope that I can do for the next person, taking the time. Mm-hmm. to listen to them, to to hear what they have to say, to read what they've written. Because what people don't realize is that can make a huge difference in someone's like five, 10 minutes can yeah. make a huge difference. So this guy actually took the time to read it. And I could tell because I looked at what he had to say. And he said, this seems like this would be something good for a newspaper. Yeah. Did you try that? So I was like, okay, let me try newspapers. But I didn't know what to do. I had gone to a... Uh, presentation that was down in the dumps. I remember I, I, at the time I was broke <laughs> and I got to this presentation and it was uh, Kevin Powell was on stage yeah. as well as Michael Eric Dyson. And after it was over, there's a book signing. And I'm like, man, I ain't got no money to buy the books. <laughs> I'm going to stand in line anyway. Let me peruse this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stand in line. I don't have the money to buy it. I don't know if this guy's going to talk to me or what. And I stood in line for Michael Eric Dyson and we just talked. And I, re- I just remember him speaking to me once again, huge crowd or whatever, but he took the time and he said, here's some folks that I know in, in newspapers that might be interested yeah. in hearing what you have to say. Got in line, talked to Kevin Powell, same thing, gave me some people and so forth. Mm-hmm. So I followed up with that. My writings ended up in newspapers That's across cool. New York City, Daily Challenger, other black newspapers carried, carried my articles. Yeah. And this is when the internet was, was, was there, it was growing, 
Mm-hmm. But people were still reading newspapers. And I had gotten an email from uh, Franklin Marshall College in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And they said, would you like to come in and speak to the Black Student Union? And they invited me to speak there two years in a row. And that put me on the path. So those are just a few stories, you know, uh, in terms of, once again, helping to shape uh, where I am today. Appreciate that. That's that's great. I love hearing it. Um, let's, talk, let's talk about Afrofuturism a little yes. bit. Describe your relationship with how Afrofuturism is presented in contemporary mass media. Um, and I think I touched on this a little bit earlier that I've had people who might pop on and they'll mention that in their byline, but are hesitant to talk about it. Or they have a very like kind of myopic, a very like silo view of what it is and what right. it isn't. Right. And yeah. So so tell me about like your relationship with how it's presented for, for mass consumption. Right. Well, <laughs> I think I'm the opposite. I love talking about it. Um, so <laughs> I don't have a problem with that. Uh, for me, uh, Afrofuturism is just looking. I look at it in, in two ways. In one way, I look at it, the creative side. And it's looking at this space of black creators as well as black representation in science fiction, fantasy, comic books, speculative fiction, that whole arena. And we're looking at the creators in terms of recognizing and celebrating black contributors to that realm, because a lot of folks think that this is new for us. You know, mm-hmm. that that, you know, this you just heard about it and it's only been around for 10 or 20 years. Folks don't know that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote science fiction. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, the Comet, you know, uh, Delaney, you know, um, Blake or the Huts of America, speculative fiction. I even look at um, ancient Africa as being Afrofuturist. If you're talking about developing math, you're talking about developing science and those things. That is something you're developing for the future. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So you have this vision of what you want future generations to be able to do. Because right now, you know, you can create for yourself without developing math, without developing science and all these other things and live, you know, a good life. But the moment you say, no, I'm looking at science, I'm looking at math, I'm looking at all these things. I am now thinking about the people that come after me because I'm going to teach them how to sustain themselves and how to build for themselves. So I look at that side of Afrofuturism as its all-encompassing creation. I also look at it as um, history, past, present, and future all in one arena at the same time. I don't look at these things happening separately. I look at them happening all together, and I think Afrofuturism speaks to that. Okay, And on the other side, there's a very real and... um, I guess, uh, analytical approach in terms of where will black people be 100 years, 200 years, 300 years from now. And when I say it in that realm, I'm not talking about, you know, just in terms of like fantasy. I'm talking about looking at the data today, looking at where we are and looking at where we want to be and where we probably will end up based on our habits and such today. So I also look at it from that very real point of view. So it's not for me, any one area, any one thing. It's all encompassing. So that's the way that I view Afrofuturism. So in it, do you feel that in mass media, so like when and, and I'm thinking, one, thank you for sharing that. But mm-hmm. and, and two, I, I'm thinking like when we see m- m- more content, like pop culture related content that's right. kind of labeled or light, it's, it's like dotted line yes. to, to Afrofuturism. <laughs> how do you feel that that is representative of it? And how do you feel that 
people are doing a good job or bad job? How do you kind of right, rate that right, from right. your standpoint as being a person that's a consumer as well right, and a person right, that speaks and right. knows about this particular area? Um, it's, it's hard for me to say because, you know, there are things that I enjoy and things that I don't. Sure. And, I, and, I, and I just look at it, it sounds, you know, simplistic. And, and I think it's really just that simple. Um, the only thing that I would say that I'm concerned about is all too often when black people create things, we tend to lose control of it. And it's, it's only a matter of time. You know, if you create something, of course, people of other ethnicities, races, or whatever the case might be, will embrace it, will take it on because you li- you're living around other people. Cultural <laughs> diffusion is inevitable. But what concerns me is all too often we create things to empower our communities, to build up our communities, um, to make our communities more powerful, yeah. not just empower, but to make powerful. Yeah. And I think there's a lot of black folk that are uncomfortable with that. Mm-hmm. We, we, we seem to shy away from the idea that we built something and it's ours because before we really begin to like crystallize it, shape it, we already start having this conversation we have this conversation. Can other people do it? Yeah. Can we let other folks in and so forth? I'm like, well, let's finish building it up first. Mm-hmm. Let's secure it first before we start concerning ourselves with what other people can or can't do with it. It just yeah. seems like that it's all, we have that com- com- conversation yeah. prematurely, you know. Yeah, I, I'll throw, I'll throw this your way. I, I used to do a podcast called Unofficially Black, mm. and it was just like me and one of my buddies, um, and it would be things that quote unquote black people don't do that, uh-huh. and we would just basically come from that perspective as black guys. He, man, he's he's very safe beige, but still black guys. Right. You know, colorism aside, and. Right. You know, we would have these different conversations from, you know, our perspective. And I remember early, early on and the your, your, your background caught my attention because this was one of the early episodes of that podcast because I was a late adopter. I didn't jump on the bandwagon immediately to see Black Panther. Oh, you're okay. going to lose your black heart. I was like, how do we? I was like, but yeah. you're inviting people to the quote unquote cookout. Exactly. But because I didn't jump and cape and wear a daishiki to right. a right. premiere. And right. You know, and one of the things I was like, I don't like crowds. I'd rather wait a little. I got you. And, you know, I remember some of the takes when the film came out and how that got revised after uh, Chadwick Boseman passed. I was like, yes. I remember a lot of y'all saying he was the weakest part of the movie. Right. I remember a lot of y'all were keeping for like the Royal Guard or what have you saying they're the right. best part. So now we shifted. And it's just interesting where people kind of took what they wanted to take from it to kind of paint what story made the most sense to them. Yes. But as upon rewatching it, like I just dug it more than when I initially watched it because I had that baggage going into it around like identity and are you black enough? Cause that's stuff that I've heard forever, you know? Yes. And in going there and rewatching it, I was like, yo, this scene happened. This is reminiscent of this. And that's, right. that's right. happening. I still, right. you know, had my issues with some of the third act. I right. was like, that's a loose CGI. But I was like, I appreciate this movie much more. Right. And the things that I appreciated it for, I appreciated it even more for those things. Right. And I, and I think that's what great art does. Mm-hmm. I think when, when, when something is done correctly, it has legs, it has longevity. And you can look at it 5, 10, 15 years from now and maybe even see something new that you didn't notice before. Yeah. Uh, the conversations that come out of it. You know, if a movie is really good, 
folks are talking about it long after it's over and all types of conversations, you know, stuff that didn't even happen in the movie, you know, you're talking about because it made you think of something else. And I think that to your point, I think one of the, in my opinion, one thing that I notice in a lot of conversations with black folks, we seem to have a level of analysis for each other Mm -hmm. that we don't have for other folks. Yes. You know, and I think that that, um, can be damaging if we're not careful. There's a, there's a level of scrutiny that we'll have for each other that we don't have for other people. And, and that uh, is something that uh, you see a lot, especially when it comes to art, when it comes to mm-hmm. um, expression and so forth. Uh, more questions are being asked of you than say your white counterpart is pretty much doing the same thing. And, and I don't uh, think that they mm-hmm. run into, I don't think that that cohort of people run into it. So like when, let's say Shang-Chi came about, I don't think there was a similar conversation. No, no. <laughs> so no. It, it, it's, it's odd, but it was presented in some pockets as, oh, this, like, if you like Black Panther, you know, you're going to love this. It's right. like, all right, go, go on, guys. Yeah. Let's, let's ease yeah. off the gas a little bit. Exactly. It, it just, this is, this is just, this is a movie. <laughs> right, 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 right. But yeah, I, but I absolutely agree with it. And that is something, and I think in some of the pockets, you know, that we we talked about earlier that we travel in, that thing happens. And I think it's, it's conversation worthy and it's discourse worthy and people need to be more open to it because, um, as we used to say, and uh, unofficially black, there's no step one to being a black people. There's that black right. person. There's no shortcut to being a black person. Right, right, right. Um, so I got I got a couple more for you. Sure. Um, often th- this one is very interesting to me. Okay. Often we learn about what one's inspiration is, and mm-hmm. we usually get these kind of great, you know, warm and fuzzy about the motivators. Right. But, Sometimes we don't get those those warm and fuzzy. Sometimes it's something dark. Like I remember I used to say I'm running off of lack, spite and things of that nature that right. are those motivators. So right. do you have any motivators that kind of fall into like this is effective? This is not like the thing I want on the bio. This is not like the nice thing. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, not really. The, the only thing that uh, motivates me that I guess you would say I wouldn't even call it a negative. Yeah. I would just say that's kind of. You know, somewhere else, I don't know. Uh, failure is, yeah. is something that, that scares me because the first time that I tried to go out on my own and, and, and say I was going to do something, it didn't work out. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when you, when you try, like, I don't know, when you, when you really set the bar high and it doesn't work, at least for me, the low is really low. You know what I'm saying? So the higher you go up on that tightrope, oh, I can walk this, I can walk this, the further down you're going to fall. And I remember, man, when it didn't work out the first time, it really didn't work out. Yeah. And But the good thing was, you know, it took a minute to recover and kind of dust yourself off. But it was really good because, for one, you get to see who's really in your corner and who's really supporting you yeah. um, to say that, you know, I got you. And it's going to be okay. It's going to be better. And then the other thing is, if you you learn from it, you know, and, and you figure out, let me learn more about this craft. So one of the things, like, just because you are a great writer, that in and of itself isn't enough to sustain you. The talent alone isn't enough 
to sustain you. There's a business side to it. There's a work ethic to it. There's all these other elements. If you want to turn it into something that you want to sustain yourself, that you also have to be cognizant of. So I think that um, for me, going back to your original question, uh, failure is something that that keeps me going because I, I, I've tasted that before and I didn't like the taste of it. So yeah, it's, it's sour. It's not. Yeah. Good. This, yeah. this, this, uh, this potato salad has raisins in it. I, yeah. I didn't want that. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I've been in that spot before and finding, I think you, you learn a lot from those quote unquote failures or what have yeah. you. And, you know, I, I learned, um, that money is not my biggest motivator. I learned that. And and this was one of those things where the day job funds the creative passion. So I think if there is less money coming in from the day job, it's like, I got to focus on like not eating only asparagus because I'm going to afford frozen vegetables instead of like buying a new microphone. This is going to sound patchy for a little bit. And I I remember that thing kind of suffered for a bit. And I looked at it, I was like, no, this is coming from me. I'm the person that's this, that's driving this and I'm too closely identifying with the thing that made me money. And that's really not for me, the thing right. that I'm doing kind of going back to what do we procrastinate doing? What, right. what do we, exactly. and, and that's the thing that was driving it. But I recognized that connection. And I think yeah. once I was able to recognize that I was like, well, I'm not going to be in that spot again right? because it was hindering me doing this creative thing that I, that that's, it's just me. That's what my identity is. Right. So this is the last real question I have. And then okay. I got some rapid fire ones for you. <laughs> So this is one I think is kind of funny. Often we hear further culture, which feels like a 90s branding geared towards the urban demo. What does that mean to you in the truest sense? Like when someone is like being earnest and they're saying we're doing this for the culture, I feel like Kelsey Grammer's behind it for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> I, don't take, I don't know why I'm taking shots at Kelsey, right. but, you know, <laughs> girlfriends, right. I don't know. Right. But you know, what, what comes to mind when you think of like the truest sense of what someone's trying to put out there when they're saying this is for the culture? You may not like this answer. No, uh, please, please. Like one, one, one of the things that I don't know, slogans like that just don't do it for me. Same. You know, uh, and there's so many others. I mean, that, that could be a show unto itself because I think that sometimes the slogans, it loses what it originally meant to be and it just becomes this thing to say and it also becomes an excuse that i can say and do anything but if Mm -hmm. i put for the culture on it then that makes it okay and if you challenge it something's wrong with you Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying so i'm allowed to do and say all of these different things and at the end of the day i'm saying i'm doing this for the culture and if you're like well you know i don't agree with that (laughs) that's not really building up the culture then i get to call you a hater which is another word that I hate, by the way, (laughs) because that just kind of, you know, there's no analysis. I'm just dismissing, you you know? So a lot of the slogans, I, they just don't do it for me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like I said, it kind of takes away from what I think, what it is we're really trying to do. You know, if, if I'm thinking for the culture, it just means those things that are really and truly going to uplift black people and it's really it really just comes down to a simple question is it good for black folks or is it bad for black folks yeah flat you know that's it and 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 that and that's the thing. Like I, I find that when something starts to permeate, and I agree with you, mm. when there's something that starts to permeate and it's out there, I naturally I'm in that spot of like, who's this for? That that's right. literally right. where I live at. And right. 
I remember it was this period where people would just do something that felt a little reckless or a little dismissive. It's like, oh, self-care. Right, it's right. Like, that's not what that is. Exactly. Like, and, you know, for the, for the culture is a prime example. And it's just like, and that's why I worded the question I, the way I did, because it reeks of it's giving, if you will, right. <laughs> 90s McDonald ads. And right, right, like, right, right. All right, right, cool. We like Sprite. I don't know what to right. tell you. Like, what do you right. want from me? Right. And, you know, and all too often, that's exactly where these slogans end up. Yeah. They end up in ads. Yeah. They end up selling products to us because they say, oh, black folks talk. They love this phrase. Yeah. You know, somebody, you know, <laughs> hung out at a barbershop one day and a couple of black folks say it and like, oh, let's use this to, to, to convince them, you know, that, you know, uh, 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 brown band-aids are for the culture. You know, <laughs> so that's when you end up getting these things that you didn't need or you weren't looking for. And someone else is telling you now that this yeah. is for your own good. You know, and once again, when you challenge it, you're the one being questioned. And I think when they go a little too far in that wrong direction and it feels very overt because, you know, folks in that kind of role, they love to sneak this. And sometimes when they go a little too much, when it's yeah. like you're not even sneak this and you're not even right. being a ninja about it. Right. Right. That's where you get, you know, Juneteenth ice cream and yes. cocoa butter. And exactly. And as I said, in this, this will date the podcast a little bit. We're not too far away from it, but. I remember once watching CNN the night, I think it was maybe the, I think it was Juneteenth maybe. And I'm just looking at the colors and the messaging and all of that. And I was like, you guys just rebranded freedom. I was like, exactly. this is not even the colors of the, there is a Juneteenth flag. These right. are Pan-African colors. Right. I was like, what are we doing? And it's like, right. who's this for? Right. Right. And so, that's what happens once again, when you don't circle the wagons mm-hmm. around what you create, when you don't circle the wagons around what you have and, and not be afraid to tell people, you can't get in. Yeah. You're not on the list. You're not on the list. Right. And and if you are going to quote unquote get in, there are certain rules you have to follow in order for this thing to be acceptable. You know, I always point to anime, for example, and it's, you know, definitely relate to the folks that are listening. (laughs) I just can't draw anything and call it anime. No. You know, you just can't have an animated film and call it anime. You know, and I know anime needs animation, so forth. But yeah. it still has to look a certain way. It has to sound a certain way. There are certain rules you have to play by, and if you're not doing that, that the 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 anime culture will say that's not anime. It yeah. has no problem saying that. Mm-hmm. It has no problem telling you that. So I think that using that as an example, that is how we should look at the things that we create. Yeah. This is what it's going to look like. These are, these are the words and terms associated with it. And if you're bringing in anything other than what we've listed, that's not this. Call yeah. it something else, but that's not what this is. And I, once again, we can't be afraid to do that. I, I agree. And we could go on for, right. don't, don't let me get started talking about food. Right. But, uh, you know, I think that's a good stop, spot for us to kind of stop with the real questions. And now with all of the goodwill that we've established over the last 30 some odd minutes, right. uh, now it's time for some rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, so, you know, top of mind, whatever pops in your head in, in, sure. initially. Um, so first one, well, in three words or less, what makes your brand uh, successful? Because I'm just going to uh, uh, summarize it as a brand. I think that's the right. full, yeah. Three words? In three words or less. Oh, three words or less. I would say hard work relationships. What's your favorite drink? Probably, um, what's the lemonade and iced tea put together? Uh, we don't call it Arnold Palmer anymore, half and half? Yeah, that's the one, <laughs> yeah. half and half. Uh, what's your favorite word in a language outside of your primary uh, language? Wow. 
Um, geez, that is a good one. Um, <laughs> outside of my primary language, probably um, maybe hola, just saying hello to folks. Nice. Yeah. I, Vaz usually curse words and you know, Spanish, <laughs> like Spanish curse words. Uh, let's see. If you had to change your first name, what would you change it to? Peru. Okay. And lastly, this this one you'll like, I think, was Killmonger right? <laughs> I'm, 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 you know, I'm going to put it like this. I'm going to put it like this. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. But you know what I really thought was interesting about Killmonger? Like you said, when you go back and you watch the film over again, I don't know that his whole experience embodied black people. Mm-hmm. Or were they trying to embody aspects of white people? Mm. Because the reason why I, I bring this up is because you're looking at someone who was kept out of paradise, mm-hmm. but he viewed to be paradise, couldn't get in, and was abandoned by where he came from. Mm-hmm. And I remember listening and reading uh, Malcolm X. He was talking about his interpretation of the Old Testament, you know. And I saw parallels between that story of being kicked out of the Garden of Eden and having this anger and frustration against the folks that put you out. Mm. And I think that there's a lot, obviously, of of Killmonger that embodies the Black experience in, in, in many ways. But I also think it embodies aspects of the white experience and white history that folks aren't talking about. Because remember, in the movie, um, the, the agent, what's his name? Ross. Yeah. He says he's one of ours. Yes. Yeah, he did. We made him. Yeah. He's clear on that. And when you look at this outside force that comes into Africa to get Africans to fight each other, uh huh, black folk ain't doing that. No. No black person's going back to the continent of Africa getting black folks to fight one another. That's an experience that has come from imperialists. Yeah. So in as much as, yeah, there are aspects to Killmonger that are revolutionary and so forth, there's also a lot to him that speaks to the imperialist mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, wanting to get revenge against the African continent. Um, once again, getting Africans to fight one another. Because if you look at the entirety of the film, for all of his revolutionary acts, who does he who, who is he killing more of? Yeah. Yes. You know. And it's and it's about it's about him ultimately. It's like, well, yes. you guys fine, but I need to be the king. I, yes. I still need to be on the throne. This yes. is mine. Yes. Yeah. So in many ways, yes, I one hundred percent agree with Killmonger and a lot of what he was saying and what he was doing. But I think that very cleverly they yeah. also inserted this dual mindset. And this is part of uh, probably what kind of Drove him crazy because also remember, am I talking too much about this one? No, no, you're good. You're good. Please, no, oh, okay. please, please, please. Because the other part, remember, this guy burns down the garden. Yes, he does. So this is about him destroying the future mm-hmm. of Wakanda. This is not stop with me. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's no, no. These Wakandans aren't immortal. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And he also. When he when he undergoes this process of speaking to the ancestors, yeah. he's not on the ancestral realm. He's not reconnecting with the Africans going all the way back. Yeah. He's only reconnecting with that one generation, his own father. He doesn't even see True. where he comes from. It's not even Wakanda. It's, it's back right. in Oakland or what have you. Right. 
So that's as far back as he's gone mentally. Yeah. Because once, if you look at T'Challa, he doesn't know all those no, Wakandans that was in the field. He doesn't know all of them. But it's baked in and embedded. But they're there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? There's still a connection. So he doesn't even have that past connection. So I think Killmonger is this this underrated villain in many ways, underrated yeah. character. When people talk about great MCU villains, they will go to Thanos and so forth. Yeah. You know, uh, Killmonger, I think, gets forgotten. But I think that he, they've done a like the really good job of putting together these these this dual mindset, this African and this European mindset into Killmonger. And you also saw that in the what if yeah. animated show, which I thought was brilliant in terms of the way they portrayed him there. So yeah. yeah. Thank you. That 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 is yeah, that a little long winded, but no 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 that, yeah. that is great and has given me ideas. We'll talk later about that. Right. Um so uh, I think we'll wrap up there. One, um, I want to thank you for being on this podcast and being such a great guest. And two, I want to invite and encourage you to tell the fine folks where to check you out and check out your work. Oh, thanks. Uh, well, for one, my website is afrofuturismnet.com. That is afrofuturismnet.com. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook under Afrofuturism Network. Um, and also on uh, LinkedIn, because I'm always trying to connect with folks and do business. You can find me under William Jones there. And uh, I would invite all of your listeners, including yourself, you know, check me out on my radio show, uh, Into the Afroverse. Yes. That's the name of it. Uh, 1450 AM, uh, uh, WOL, 95.9 FM. Uh, and that's once again in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. But if you're listening outside of that, you can find me online, WOL dcnews.com you can check me out there and please pick up a copy of my book the ex-con voodoo priest goddess and the african king where i'm analyzing four black superheroes that is i'm analyzing luke cage storm papa midnight and the black panther and you can find that on amazon and also sold on my website that's that's it so there you have it, folks. Um, I want to again thank William Jones for coming on to the podcast. And I'm Rob Lee saying that there is art, community, conversation in and around Baltimore. You just got to look for it. 